It's 4pm and time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Analog, 855am, digital, 3CR, streaming, 3cr.org.au, podcast, 3cr.org.au, whatever you choose. Today, the US feeling threatened of its position in the Middle East with Dr. Tim Anderson. Using FOI to find out what the Australian government is up to read. Israel and Palestine with Paul Haywood Smith. Part two of Genetic Engineering with Bob Phelps, Richard Brinowski and those submarines. Confronting the turfs on our streets with Debbie Brennan. Let's start off with Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when years of inactivity on climate change, if there is such a thing, will be replaced by years of activity so effective the legislation has received rave reviews from the sundry chambers of prophets and the great fossil behemoths themselves, who say they can live with it even if the planet can't. And let me clarify that years of inactivity bit, because I could hear you saying, but they were years of activity by the great fossils and the sundry chambers of prophets making sure the fossils did their bit for climate change, if there is such a thing. And now the great fossils tell us they must continue to explore for, extract, export and burn fossils, which we've discovered are a critical element of transitioning from exploring for, extracting, exporting and burning. Oh, and it is imperative that the government compensate them for transitioning, because without the proper tax arrangements and corporate welfare, the poor fossils can't afford to transition. Although, they must keep mentioning tax, why they must keep mentioning tax eludes me, because it's not like they pay any in the first place. Essential welfare, obviously, for a mid-headline after headline announcing record profits for the coal giants, Headline this week, Coal Shift Needs Government Funds. And it must break their hearts to know that if those government funds are not forthcoming, which they are, the government regularly announces it will compensate for fossils for not fossiling quite as much, but for the sake of, without them, they'd just have to, they'd be forced to keep up the business as usual of exploring, extracting, exporting and burning which they intend to do anyway while preserving the environment by the tried and true, untried and untrue panacea of burying your head in the sand, sequestration, carbon capture and storage, and just a touch of bad luck, three juxtaposition stories this week, an article by Samantha McCulloch, real name, Supremo of the True Blue Aussie Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, of how excited she was visiting Chev Got It Wrong's gas plant on ecologically fragile Barrow Island off western True Blue Aussie, home to the world's largest carbon dioxide storage site, a glimpse into a new growth industry that is critical to True Blue Aussie reaching net zero. And we need to send a clear signal to our neighbours that Trublawasi is open for the business of burying their heads in the sand. But the touch of bad luck? Same week as Denmark announced a plan to bury its CO2 in the North Sea, an energy analyst, Bruce Robertson, commenting on it, countered, while several recent projects have focused on the climate benefits of storing carbon underground, these have been largely unsuccessful. 
and then to rub salt into poor Samantha's wounds. The project in Trubler was he driven by industry majors such as Chev Got It Wrong, Shell Pollute, Hex on the Planet, who attract the best petroleum engineers in the world, and they can't get this project to work. It's underperforming pretty radically. But, 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 but that's the very success story that had poor Samantha near orgasmic. And to compound the blow, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline, Chev got it wrong gas plant, limps to a restart. The Barrow Island plant was approved on the guarantee the CO2 not being buried would be buried, despite a prominent academic geologist at the time pointing out the geology was so porous that even if they managed to bury it, it would just pop back out again. Still, they tried to do their bit for the environment, and it's just too uneconomical to abide by their approval conditions. Consistency and sincerity, of course, dominate on this issue, like U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden Capital, a Biden Capital, by announcing a huge fund for renewable projects, then approving a $12 billion Conamco Phillips the Atmosphere oil project in Alaska, giving the finger to long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron protesters who claim ludicrously it would be one of the largest oil and gas projects on public land. We are too late in the climate crisis to approve new oil and gas projects, they complained. Well, obviously not, and anyway, Conamco fill ups the atmosphere echoing our own true blue Aussie fossils, pointed out this was a breakthrough for the environment. It fits with the Biden Capitals administration's priorities on environmental and social justice, facilitating the energy transition and enhancing our energy security, all while creating union jobs and providing benefits to Alaskan Native communities. Yeah, like our own first people have benefited so magnificently from the fossils here. And they said that with a straight face. Timely warning to lazy, avaricious, lowest of the low-paid workers and evil unions from the economically wise, filthiest rich of the filthy rich that giving the lowest of more money to counter inflation would make inflation worse and be bad for and hurt those workers. Showing the filthiest rich of have nothing but those workers' interests at heart. And we know what big hearts they have. In a world of spiralling costs in which we have no choice but to spiral costs, it would be economic disaster if the cost of labour also increased. Uh, but, but if all other costs are rising, shouldn't the cost of labour also rise? It's just another price for a product in an inflationary environment. Oh dear, how naive. Don't you care about inflation? Uh, but you keep saying you would love to an end to, to slow wage growth. Absolutely, it's our greatest wish, our dearest wish, but not when it will hurt a fragile economy facing headwinds and obviously without productivity trade-offs. Headwinds are a big problem for the filthiest rich of. Every time they announce a record profit, they point out that there are headwinds they will face in the next year, just in case those lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions think the record profits just may preface a chance to address slow wage growth. That threat of a wage price 
caring business class price spiral that more money would make workers worse off must explain why so many caring employers show they care for those workers by giving them less and less as they strive to make those workers better off, like beauty giant Mecca Cosmetics, which moved thousands of those lucky, lucky workers off expired agreements, allowing them not to pay penalty rates for 17 years. Certainly a Mecca for Mecca. All, let's make it clear, done inadvertently. And Dumpling Empire Din Tai Fung, real name, also went out of its way to ensure its lucky, lucky workers didn't contribute to inflation by underpaying them and constructing false wage records to conceal its big-heartedness. Totally inadvertent underpayment and concealment, meaning we must criticise the federal court beak who... How's this for misjudging a decent, caring employer who said the contravening conduct was not isolated, ad hoc or inadvertent? Shame, Your Honour, shame. Thankfully, the huge fines Din Tai Fung would face have been circumvented by going into liquidation and reopening under a new entity run by a former director while the owner has fled the country put to all that trouble just for attempting to do its bit to control inflation. One of what must be a series of downsides to being a serial bridegroom struck Paul Lord a whopping this week as he announced he would be celebrating yet another engagement to yet another decades younger woman who must find filthy rich nonagenarians just so attractive. In that case over Lord Rupert Empire's maintaining the I was robbed rubbish post the US of election and other slight editorial inaccuracies, his lawyers argued at his age it would be too burdensome for poor Lord Rupert to travel and give evidence. And just a bit of bad luck, the same media was reporting its supremo, old lover boy himself, would be travelling all over the place, whooping it up with his new love, eliciting from his honour... That doesn't sound like someone who can't go from New York to Wilmington. Let's get the story straight on these types of things. Which, getting the story straight, is of course what the trial's all about. Anyway, the week that was wishes the happy couple well. In his usual caring way, Lord Rupert jettisoned his previous wife by email. So we recommend his new love ignore them. Accuracy continues to be the business of Lord Rupert's empire here, like telling us its very favourite politician, state big supremo the pejorative Dan, was on a secret trip to China, to evil China, indicating for once his dedicated team somehow missed that the pejorative Dan had called a press conference a day earlier to announce he was going to China. Uh, they must have misplaced the invite. In another court, in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country, His Most Gracious son, trained killing loving Harry, turned up in a defamation case and told the bench he had been raised to never explain, never complain. <laughs> I've got a feeling young Harry missed the point on that one. Then again, it shows inbreeding can be a problem. We all recall fondly Harry having fun, fun, fun in a Nazi uniform, which makes it difficult to believe that the true blue Aussie trained killer lot here have discovered there are neo-Nazis and Nazi sympathisers in its ranks. 
Who would have thought an occupation dedicated to killing people would attract people who love killing people? And this amid silly suggestions that our state, sorry, police, go out of their way to protect neo-Nazis from dangerous long-haired commie greenies. Who would have thought again? As the screaming crowd cheered the minister for being offensive and train-killing Richard Maul's the bad guys as they introduced the by-election winner Saturday night as some socialist god, I thought, but he's a warmonger. He's spending trillions on killing people. His tongue is covered with Joe Biden Capital's boot polish. And then the caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo giant mind Constable Peter Duffer said it must concentrate on its beliefs and values and I thought but but that's what got them into this mess in the first place. Finally as we berate that judge for attacking a poor caring employer more injustice in the US of our very 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 close friend as our former big supremo and would-be big, or their former big supremo and would-be big supremo Donald Trump or the poor was forced to declare long-haired, cummy, greeny America greats again. Good afternoon. None other than Mr Kevin Healy. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Eric Bibb, and you're listening to 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Syria is in the news again as the US ramps up its focus on that Middle East country. Speaking with Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria, what's going on, Tim, with the U.S. and Syria? What's actually happening is some of the regional states which have been aligned to the U.S. have been normalising with Syria, in particular the Emirates and uh, now more recently the Saudis, which is very important because they've been, particularly the Saudis, have been an agent for the proxy war against, against Syria, of course. So, in other words, some of the U.S. allies, let's say, or agents have, started to assert more autonomy from the U.S. because they want to be in the future and have some influence in the region, um, which they will otherwise have lost if they back the losing side, keep backing the losing side. Well, what does normalisation mean? Well, five years ago, the the Emirates um, reopened diplomatic relations. So it means, first of all, opening, reopening diplomatic relations, reopening their embassy, having more respectful diplomatic contacts and certain types of cooperation on, on, on certain issues. For example, the Saudis have just invited Syrian President Assad to a, an Arab summit in Riyadh, uh, which is, and of course there's, the process has been going on to 
re-invite a number of Arab states have joined in the, the re-invitation of Syria to the Arab League, which Syria was one of the founders of the Arab League. Whether the Arab League has, still has any life in it, given that it was used to destroy or attempt to destroy two of the most independent Arab states, Libya and Syria, is another question. But nevertheless, there are these ongoing gestures uh, of normalising relations. That means also trade. It means also investment. The Emirates, for example, have have begun to invest in, in Syria also. What about relations with Iran at the moment? So there's a change going on there too because, as you may have seen, China brokered a rapprochement between, between Iran and the Saudis, uh, which is important because, of course, Iran is the largest independent state in West Asia in the, in the so-called Middle East and has been supporting the Palestinian resistance and the resistance in Lebanon and supporting Syria and Iraq and Yemen. But um, the Saudis have been on the other side, aligned with the U.S. and uh, having covert relations with the Israelis, letting the Israelis into Yemen to colonise some of the, the Yemeni territory, also Socotra Island in particular. So the fact that China was, was able to, through its uh, Shanghai Cooperation initiatives, which are about creating new norms in the world and also being a major consumer of energy from the Saudis, China was able to broker this, um, what, what you might call detente, between Iran and, and the Saudis. The Saudis, of course, are one of the main agents, um, after Israel, the main agent of the US in the Middle East. What about Turkey? Turkey is also in a, in a sort of in-between position, but Turkey remains a member of NATO. It is still occupying Syria. There hasn't been a rapprochement there. But nevertheless, um, Russia and Iran um, have been talking to Turkey and trying to negotiate an exit of, of Turkish forces from Syria. There's that process which was um, which basically sidelined the Western attempt to create a diplomatic solution for or not for Syria, basically. So really, Russia and Iran have been trying to convince Erdogan in particular. I think it's quite a personal thing when it comes to Turkey. Really, there are many signs from even the ruling party in Turkey that they want a a change in their, uh, they want a move towards more normalisation with Syria for a number of reasons, but um, Erdogan has a particular history there against Syria and against President Assad, so there's, there is still a way to go there. What about bases in Syria of these countries you've just talked about? The US is not there now, is it, but it's got its proxies there, is that true? No, the U.S. is still there. The U.S. has a, a, some U.N. official tried to deny it recently, but the U.S. occupation is still there. I saw it myself last year. Um, they're still occupying several parts of Syria, mainly along the border with Iraq, to try and divide Syria from Iraq and Iran. And then, of course, Turkey is occupying the northwest, and the Israelis are occupying parts of the south. So the U.S. occupation, it, it has bases, it has air bases there also in particularly in northeastern, but also in southern Syria, along the border with Iraq. Well, what's going to happen with them? Well, when the U.S. eventually is persuaded or forced to retreat from Syria and Iraq, and I believe the two will happen together because they're, they're intimately linked. You know, the theft of Syrian oil, for example, for example, happened through Iraq and makes use of the fact that the U.S. is still occupying Iraq against the wishes of the Iraqi parliament, which, as you may remember, passed a unanimous resolution three years ago after the murder of Soleimani and Mohandas for the U.S. to leave Iraq. So 
those two occupations are uh, there's pressure for them to end. There's local resistance against the, the U.S. occupation there and um, uh, in Syria and in Iraq. So eventually that's going to end. You saw, for example, when Trump was campaigning, what was it, seven years ago, 2016, he was foreshadowing a withdrawal from Syria and Iraq and, in fact, carried out a, a partial withdrawal from Syria. But um, And he wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, but he couldn't do that either. And, of course, the Biden administration picked up the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Eventually, eventually, even the U.S., which can pursue a losing war for some time, as we saw with Vietnam many years ago, uh, eventually it, it gives in to reality, basically. So eventually there will be a U.S. withdrawal from Syria and Iraq, I believe. And where does this leave the economic blockade? The economic blockade is still there based on the tyranny of the dollar, basically. And this is um, something I was just watching today on Fox News from a, a right-wing extremist senator, Senator Martin Rubio, who's known for his extremism over Latin America. But in this case, he was uh, complaining about China doing trade relations with Brazil, which is the largest country in, in Latin America, um, in their own currencies, avoiding the dollar. And he was bewailing that, saying, look, if this keeps on going in a few years, we won't be able to sanction anyone because their economies will be functioning outside the dollar. So the fact that the dollar dominates still, although there's been some diminution of it, there's some, they call it diversification, the more that transactions, international transactions are carried out outside the dollar, the less the capacity the U.S. has to impose what they call sanctions, what are really unilateral coercive measures against all sorts of countries, including you know, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, but Nicaragua, but also, of course, all of the Middle Eastern countries and some African countries too. There's more than, there's at least two dozen, more than two dozen countries that are, have these direct siege, economic siege measures imposed on them because the U.S. can do it because it controls the, the flow of dollars and uh, through the SWIFT system also. How would you describe life on the ground for the grassroots people in Syria today? It's extremely difficult, extremely difficult. The currency is devalued a lot, and the, the thing that floats them, the thing that keeps them surviving is that Syria and Iran, which is in a, a bigger country in different contexts, but Syria produces a lot of its own products. It produces most, most of its own food, produces clothes, it produces lots of manufactured items, even cars, for example, but so a lot of basic things are produced in Syria, which means that there's some sort of buffer in terms of local markets to this interna impact on, international impact on blocking investment, blocking trade and so on. But nevertheless, it still hurts. And salaries are extremely low. I was there last year. Salaries are, are very, very low. People are genuinely hurting, suffering. The health system is deprived of certain essential things that often are imported, you know, a lot of medicines like things like insulin for diabetics and so on, a lot of those things are important. Syria used to have a big pharmaceutical industry, but a lot of that was damaged during the war because these armed groups, one of their tactics was to go into the hospitals, loot them, take all the medicines and so on, and then destroy them afterwards, and then later on claim that the Syrian army had destroyed them, something like that. But the, the pharmaceutical industry has gone down along with the, the public health system in Syria, so... There is still a public health system, but people often have to go along and pay for the the things that the doctors are going to use, you know, the surgical gloves and the, the drugs and so on like that. So 
there's been a sort of de facto privatisation because the public system has been starved of resources. And are those armed groups still in the country? Yes, but they're basically enjoying safe haven under the occupations, whether under the Israeli occupation of the Jolan in the south or the Turkish occupation of parts of the northwest in Idlib, for example, um, where the the formal al-Qaeda affiliate HTS, formerly Jabhat al-Nusra, is protected by the Turkish army, and then where the US occupation exists in the, the northeast and the south, there are a number of armed groups there still that the US is giving safe haven to, including ISIS. We started off by saying about normalisation from countries like the Arab or Saudi Arabia and UAE. Can they give any assistance to Syria now or are they forbidden by the sanctions, the blockade? Technically, the third-party sanctions that the US has imposed on Syria prevent any country from doing business and they can penalise them for doing so. Um, And in fact, I think Trump played a clever movie, really blackmailed the UAE and Bahrain, which had normalised with Syria, into normalising with Israel um, some years ago. But so that yes, they are they are still vulnerable to pressures from the US, the the UAE and and the, the Saudis. But when it comes to the the earthquake aid, for example, the UAE was the largest provider of plane loads of of relief supplies to Syria. There were many planes every day coming from the UAE. Of course, the Emirates have a very large fleet of planes. They have a huge airline Emirates, but they were they were certainly involved in the relief effort for the earthquake victims, in, particularly in the north of Syria. And how are the people getting on in that area after the earthquake? It's still very difficult because there's been aftershocks and more building collapses and the the reconstruction is has been slow and is still very slow and outside investment is still blocked by the US. You know, the US claimed that it had put a waiver on or a, a, a sort of a moratorium on the its so-called sanctions against Syria for six months for earthquake aid. But there are still, it's still very difficult because they've, they've fined the banks, uh, most of the international banks, for doing business with Iran or Syria or, or Cuba. And so the banks are still intimidated about financing any transactions. Plus, the US has made it very clear that its waiver of six month waiver doesn't apply to reconstruction efforts. So the US has even blocked, for example, UNESCO helping um, Syria because Syria has many World Heritage sites and uh, if you look at some anomalies in the region, for example, UNESCO is helping reconstruction in the Iraqi city of Mosul, which is not UNESCO listed, but the uh, it's blocked. Uh, UNESCO provides no help for uh, the reconstruction in Palmyra or in Aleppo, both of which are World Heritage listed sites. So even UN agencies are, are heavily influenced by this US economic war. Does Syria have any control over its oil at all, or is it all under the control of the US? Syria has some oil. Um, It's um, got some of the oil fields, but the US has uh, more, basically. The US has chosen particular areas in the the east, particularly in the east, and uh, the US bases are near those oil fields, and they're using it to to subsidise their proxy, the the Kurdish separatists, um, BSDF there at the moment, and, and to starve the Syrians, frankly, because that's sort of part of the reason for the occupation is to separate them, to divide them from Iraq and Iran, to divide them from the support they're getting. This is also why the Israelis keep bombing Syria 
they're, they're really very scared. They're very worried about uh, an Iranian presence in Syria because a strong alliance between Iran, Iraq, Syria and the Lebanese resistance and the Palestinians is something that the Israelis see as an existential threat to their colony in Palestine. I'm just wondering how this all fits in with Israel because they're, they're, they're buddies with the other, like Saudi Arabia and UAE and those other states, yet they're losing out, it would seem, in Syria. Yeah, they are. How does it work? All of, all of the US collaborators are losing out. I mean, they all had serious anxiety when they saw the US pulling out of Kabul and saw the people, desperate people at the airport, because desperate people who thought that they were they were going to be targeted by the, the new regime, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. After the US left, and certainly the, the separatist Kurds felt that because there's been the threat of the US leaving for quite some time. Trump made it explicit some years ago. The Israelis also felt a great deal of anxiety about the US withdrawing. Remember only about 15 years ago when the Israelis invaded Lebanon in 2006, you had something like two-thirds of the U.S. military in the in the Middle East region because there were so many in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that emboldened the Israelis. Now, the reverse occurs. If the U.S. is going to withdraw from the region or partially withdraw, then the Israelis feel nervous because they, of course, keep threatening people and bombing other people, but because they believe they've got the big bully to back them up in case anything blows up in their face. Permanent anxiety. How long before we might see that withdrawal? Well, we've seen it from Afghanistan. There was a partial withdrawal that Trump did in part of northern Syria. And I think, the, of course, um, the, the remaining troops in, in northeastern and southern Syria and in Iraq are under constant pressure. They're under constant political pressure, but also resistance. There are, there are repeated almost daily attacks on U.S occupation forces there. There was one fairly recently and the the, um, the Pentagon was complaining about you know, these uh, so-called Iranian-backed forces um, attacking them. Well, they may be Iranian-backed, but they're, they're pretty much uh, the local considerations. The local people don't like the US there. There's been many demonstrations. They stone their vehicles when they go past at night. They carry out attacks and um, they're very upset at the, the Kurdish proxy, the SDF, which is kidnapping their children for conscription into their militia to have some sort of new sectarian regime there, which um, the U.S. calls an autonomous administrative zone, but really it's a, another proxy of the U.S., which is trying to divide and weaken Syria, basically. So there's, there's constant pressure there. And I think the pragmatism of the U.S. military at some stage, whether it's this year or next year, is going to, we're going to see a, a withdrawal from Syria and Iraq. They know that there's no possibility of them permanently dividing or, or carrying out regime change. So at some stage, there'll be a, a pragmatic solution, I believe. And Syria is a fairly small country in the Middle East, yet it's got these little bits being taken off it here, there and everywhere. That's true. That's true. And, and that's why the main effect of the US stealing the oil is not really that they're getting oil because it's a relatively small amount, but they are starving the Syrian people. This is part of their US strategy with sanctions against lots of countries from from the, the Cubans onwards. From, you know, 60 years ago, they, they were on record as saying the aim was to, if they can't 
overthrow the regime because it's too popular, it has popular support. That's what they said about Fidel Castro in 1961. Then they had to starve the people, make them desperate, make them rise up against their government. That's been their strategy for a very long time. We saw it with Iran. You remember Pompeo saying that if the Iranian people wanted to eat, they would you know, bend the knee to US demands there. So same with Syria. They're being punished for having successfully resisted the regime change operation. That, that's over. That's failed. Everyone knows there's no possibility of the US carrying out regime change. But what they can do is to weaken and divide and try and carve off little pieces of the country, and that's what they've been doing, even though at the same time they're complaining about Russia supposedly occupying one of its neighbours. At the same time, they're occupying a country on the other side of the world, as you say, a small country, which nevertheless was able to resist for many, many years this, this, um, this invasion. Israel, they're, I imagine, determined to keep on bombing parts of Syria and holding on to the Golan Heights? Yes, they've been, uh, they've been bombing fairly regularly. I think it's something like nine times this year and six times in the last month they've bombed. And their pretext is always that um, they're, they're bombing Iranian forces in, in Syria. Of course, there are Iranian advisors, but there's not really mass Iranian military in Syria, but there are Iranian advisors. And mainly they've been bombing Damascus to try and destabilize Syria and to try and, uh, I don't know, their, their aim is to destabilize, obviously, and, try and weaken, but it hasn't really had any effect in terms of reducing the Iranian presence in Syria. The Syrians say that there's no you know, large-scale Iranian military presence there, but there are. There have been advisors for quite some time. So Iran is supporting Syria, and that support is not diminishing at all. They, the U.S. and the Israelis keep... Uh, making attacks also on the border crossing. The one border crossing between Syria and Iraq, which was liberated by um, the late commander Hassan Soleimani, the Iranian commander, back in 2017, it's the one border crossing where there is still, for example, aid from Iraq was getting through to earthquake-struck Syria um, just recently through that border crossing because the U.S. controls all the other border crossings. Well, what about the country on the other side of Syria? And we're talking about Lebanon. The situation there seems to be getting very dire at the moment. It's very bad in Lebanon. In some ways, it's worse than Syria because Lebanon has always been a a, a trading hub, you know. And um, so they they their production, their agricultural production, their industrial production is not as strong as in Syria. So they they rely on imported things and and trade. And uh, that doesn't work when you have a collapse in your financial system, basically. So they had a type of a codependence with Syria, and in some respects they got targeted because of their, you know, to some extent, good relations with Syria. But now they, in, in the last um, three years, they've been suffering enormous shortages in of fuel, of energy, even of food. The U.S. still has its proxies in Lebanon trying to prevent closer relations with Iran and closer relations with China, for example. The Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians have all offered to help with um, energy development in, in Lebanon, but it's resisted by the what they call the American bus in Lebanon, you know, the, some of the, the extremist right-wing Christians and the uh, extremist uh, Sunni group blocs. Lebanon politically is divided into religious groupings in a, in a sectarian way they call a confessional system but it's crippled the country, really. And the conditions there are very bad. The, the, the valuation of the currency is terrible. It's something like 
Uh, it was um, 1,500 Lebanese lira to a dollar about um, four or five years ago. Now it's 60,000. So that's a devaluation much greater than even the devaluation in Syria. Is this corruption? Is it economic mismanagement? What is it? It's all of that, but behind that you've got the fact that there's not really a Lebanese state, not really a state, a functioning state in the way that there is in Syria. People often comment on it that even Syria during the war, you know, they had roads, the rubbish was collected, these sorts of things, basic sort of things, because a lot of that sort of development is in the hands of the leaders of religious communities. This is the way the system's been set up. So there's a structural weakness, or if you like, a constitutional weakness in in Lebanon, you know, it has to have a, a Maronite Christian president and then the, the Prime Minister has to be a Sunni Muslim and the head of parliament's a Shia Muslim and so on. All these sorts of constructions are part of this so called confessional system. That and the the lack of a very strong productive sector, either in agriculture or in, or in industry, weakens Lebanon basically. But um of course there's also corruption mismanagement. There's been a a guy in charge of the central bank who is very closely linked to French and French intelligence, and he's regarded as a key villain in terms of how their financial system collapsed. You know, there's, there's still serious questions about who was responsible for the huge port explosion which devastated the city too. You know, so Lebanon is is full of problems, but one of the key problems is there's not really a, a functioning state there, and it's very difficult to have a a political political will when you don't have that sort of system. For example, now, even after the last elections, there's not really a president. There's, there has to be an agreement of the parliament on a president, and that hasn't happened yet. Well, in that case, it's a wonder that the country is held together as long as it has. Sure, sure. It's really run by these big wealthy cliques, some people call mafias, that head most of the religious communities. So there's some there's enormous inequality in Lebanon. That inequality has got worse. I mean, it's happened to a degree in Syria too, but it's worse. You'd say it's worse in in Lebanon. The conditions are are, are very very difficult in Lebanon. And then you've got Israel to the south. Yes, exactly, which is causing headaches for everyone basically in in the entire region. Even though the Lebanese somehow did some sort of maritime border agreement with them over exploitation of gas there, which not everyone's happy with in Lebanon. But the, the redeeming feature in Lebanon is that there is a resistance group, Hezbollah, which is a religious uh, party, but also there's a, there, there's a wider group which they call Loyalty to the Resistance, a, a, a sort of a coalition which supports Hezbollah in the sense of Hezbollah is seen as defending the country from Israel because it, were there no Hezbollah in, in Lebanon since the 80s, basically the, you know, the southern part of, of Lebanon would be another part of Israel basically would be claimed in the way that the Jolan in, in Syria is, is claimed to have to have been annexed by the Israelis. And the current government is more aggressive in that sort of expansion too. In fact, there's been recent talk from some of the people in the, in the current coalition, Israeli coalition that they, uh, some of them are saying that Damascus is now part of greater Israel too. So there's no real limits to the type of colonisation or few real limits to the type of colonisation that some of the Zionists are speaking of now. Well, the, the resistance will be the people, surely. Sure, exactly. The resistance in within Palestinian resistance and the resistance in Lebanon, the resistance in Syria, all of which has support from Iran. One thing that I think people should understand about Iran, whatever they think of religious states, is that it's Iran that's been supporting the resistance in Palestine. 
if there were no Iran or if Iran were overthrown and a monarchy re-established, for example, all of that support for the, the armed Palestinian resistance would disappear. And the same with Syria, because Syria, of course, is the bridge between Iran and Palestine and South Lebanon. How does that support get through with such big sanction, with the big blockades everywhere? Well, the Israelis claim to be bombing the airports and ports in, in Syria to, to stop the transfer of weapons. But in reality, Iranian technology is being borrowed and has been remanufactured in many areas. They've even said it of Russia, you know, that Russia is using Iranian drones, but what really Russia is using is they're constructing uh, Iranian Iranian drone technology, basically. And similarly with uh, Iranian missiles or rockets and missiles and so on, that sort of technology is reproduced even in Palestine itself, in Gaza itself, but also in Syria. Syria is you know, manufactures weapons, Iranian weapons. Are you planning on going back in the next, next little while? Sure, quite soon, because I have another book coming out and I'll, I'll go back and show them my next book. And what's the title? West Asia After Washington. So it's at the publisher now in the US. It should be out in a couple of months. Great. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. Dr. Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria. We'll look forward to that new book. Left After Breakfast. 38 years of information, insights, analysis and opinion. Just plain old common sense, really. 8.30am on Fridays. Despite the hopes amongst some that an ALP government would oppose the 75-year-long oppression and killings to this day of Palestinians in their occupied country of Palestine, those have been disappointed and angry. There are many avenues for the government to support Israel over Palestine, but Paul Haywood Smith, a recently retired Adelaide QC, initial chairperson and continuing member of Australian Friends of Palestine Association, registered in Adelaide, has uncovered others using FOI. Welcome back to Tuesday Home Time, Paul, and I'll leave it to you to explain how your FOI requests exposed Australia's attempts to protect the apartheid state and that this might be making Australia an accomplice in a crime against humanity in order to protect it. It's fairly simple because I believe that the facts are absolutely clear that Israel is an apartheid state. It has been found to be such by numerous international bodies, Human Rights Watch based in the United States, Amnesty International, well-recognised, highly reputed organisations, B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organisation. You've had former attorneys general for Israel come out and admitting that Israel is an apartheid state. When Amnesty International published its report in uh, last year, I think February last year, shortly thereafter, uh, this is before the, the current Labor government. Penny Wong said, well, you know, she thought that the then government shouldn't just dismiss it, but she sort of said that, well, she had, had, had doubts about the fact that Israel was a 
an apartheid state. And then after she came to government and she was questioned again on the public record as saying that Australia didn't accept that uh, Israel as an apartheid state. And I was curious about that and, and, and wanted to know on what basis she asserted that. And so I brought a Freedom of Information Act application to DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, asking them to discover, to disclose the documentation upon which, which would evidence the basis upon which the Australian government rejected the finding of apartheid. And of course, this process started in November, beginning of November last year, and it has been like drawing teeth. I've been fought all the way. I've had to seek reviews. I've had to appeal to the Office of the Australian Information Commission. Uh, but I eventually last week got a response which essentially said that they were rejecting my application in part, uh, but they were releasing some material. And the material which they released was very revealing in that it disclosed that the Australian government is simply saying, oh, well, we don't accept that it's an apartheid state. We don't think it's a good way of, it's, a, it's good terminology because we're trying to encourage peace, which is good, of course, but they go on to say that um, that, that will only be achieved through negotiation. Now, that's essentially all that was disclosed to me. Nothing was disclosed in any reports which DFAT obtained, challenging in any way the findings of Amnesty International. In Israel, there's been no attempt to challenge the findings of Amnesty International. They just make, you know, these bland comments are, well, of course, they're anti-Semites, you know, they're anti-Semitic or they're biased. That's, that's their answer. Well, and this Amnesty report was 280 pages and it addresses the crime of apartheid. Apartheid is a crime. It's defined in the Rome Statute we know what it is. It is based on, on racism and it disadvantages one race group to another. But the important point is that it is a crime and it concerned me that Australia six months ago was talking about entering into a free trade agreement with Israel. Well, now, how could we conceivably do that without making ourselves an accomplice? Do Australians want to be an accomplice in a, in a war crime? I don't believe they do. I think if they knew, if they understood, they would be outraged. So anyway, that, that's why I brought the Freedom of Information Act application and, it, and, and it, it has been revealing, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in, to, in showing the paucity of information upon which DFAT has relied. And it's interesting that at the, just at the moment, the Freedom of Information Act matters are becoming a matter of some interest, just generally, not just not on this issue, but, um, and there's been quite a lot of criticism of the way our Freedom of Information Act is being uh, enforced or not enforced, as the case may be. Were you expecting this reply, or did you hope for better? What I was hoping to achieve was the fact that there is no report obtained by DFAT that would justify the assertion that Israel is not an apartheid state. Now, I would have got that by DFAT responding to my Freedom of Information Act request saying, yes, we're giving you all the information, here it is, and it's nothing. Well, it might be just a few, you know, little, just a bit of correspondence or something, 
it's nothing. That would have enabled me to go public and say, I've established that there is no report for, uh, there's no basis for the Australian government to reject the finding of apartheid. Now, what they've done, of course, is they've, they've left the door open a bit because they have, they have refused my request in part. Now, people could say, oh, well, how do we know that the part that they've refused does not include you know, 500 pages of reports challenging every fact in the thing? So I, well, we can't say that. All we can say is, well, there's been a few, they've, dis, they've discovered a few Middle East branch records from DFAT uh, as to how to respond to people querying about the Amnesty International report. That's that's all they've really done. Uh, as I said, um, bland statements about, uh, well, we don't think it's helpful to use that phrase because we're trying to achieve peace and peace through negotiation when everyone knows today the Israeli government has said there will never be a Palestinian state and they will simply not negotiate. They refuse to negotiate. So what is the point of our government saying these things when they know it's meaningless. What our government needs to do is what Australian government did 50 years ago in South Africa and that is impose financial sanctions which brought the South African government to its senses. It dissolved itself. It's apartheid government. That's what Australia needs to do. It needs to, in effect, sanction Israel, have nothing to do with it, do not have contractual relations with it, do not buy their arms, which we're doing. That's the action that is required, not simply saying, oh, well, you know, we call, on, we call upon the um, Israelis and the Palestinians to uh, engage with each other and negotiate and so on. It's meaningless. So anyway, so I think in, in, in one sense, I, got, I halfway achieved what I wanted to achieve, by, but I can't say totally because they have rejected the request on the basis, on a number of bases that it's... Um, might have the effect of, or, or that it's needed to be found by a judicial body, which is re remarkable when Australia, at the end of last year, voted against the UN General Assembly referring the matter to the International Criminal Court of Justice. Australia voted against it. How can Australia say, well, we, we think it needs to be decided by a judicial body, and then Australia wants to block a judicial body making a finding? And to me, it just shows the extent to which the Jewish lobby has real force in Australian affairs. Are you yep, aware of other Western countries rejecting the label of apartheid as Australia has, or have they accepted it? Oh, well, well, the United States, of course, that they, they always do. I think I'm not fully informed, but I, I rather suspect that the UK and Canada and Germany might have as well. But Talking about out of a, out of 190 members of the United Nations, you're talking about half a dozen countries. I suppose you call them the, the Deep West. But regardless, the fact of the matter is that it is obvious that it is an apartheid state. I mean, you have this new government declaring in its manifesto that Jews have the exclusive and unquestionable right to all parts of the land of Israel. That's just not the pre-1967 Israel, that's the land of Israel, including all of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza. And indeed, what is really worrying, really worrying to me, is that, you know, seeing material come through these days in which religious right-wing Jewish people are saying, well, now, God gave us 
the whole of the land from the Great River to, uh, what's the river in, in, in Iraq? The Great River being the Nile, so you're looking at a large part of Egypt, all of Jordan, a large part of Lebanon, all of Syria, uh, into Iraq. Now, what are we looking, what are we going to say? And, and they say, and we can't negotiate because we cannot give away anything that God gave to us. Now, when you think about people like that, if we let people like that have their way, we're, so, we're, we're looking at the next hundred years of continuing conflict in the Middle East. And I don't want that. And I don't believe other people want it. Uh, and so, and I might say, I think when we come to this writer's book, I believe the Australian people are getting the message. I think it is getting through that there is something very wrong with what's happening in Israel-Palestine. One of the other issues I'd like you to talk about briefly is the recent Adelaide Writers' Week and the attempts to silence Palestinian writers. It didn't work, did it? No, it certainly didn't. What was... um, in a sense, for the, with respect, it was something of a beat-up. Now, the two writers concerned that were picked upon were the Susan Abelhawa, who was here in Adelaide, but uh, the other one was a young man, I think he's only 24, Mohammed El-Haq, who is in New York, a Palestinian, um, uh, or the son of Palestinian parents. And they had... Um, gone back and found you know old tweets from these people uh, that can be you know and you can always find an old tweet and, and in, in context it might not sound good but and it was initially rather disappointing to people who had some strong had strong feelings about this that the South Australian Premier Peter Balanowskis who I have a great deal of time for seemed to accept the criticism, the basis of the criticism, and made, in, in effect, calls upon the uh, the leadership of the Writers' Week to uh, to exclude them. Uh, that was most disappointing, but I have greatest respect and congratulate Louise Adler the way that she steadfastly resisted all attempts to force the Writers' Week to exclude these writers. And when Writers Week actually occurred, it was remarkable the support that people gave to Louise Adler and Susan Abelhawa. It's remarkable the attendance at the uh, speeches uh, of the speech by Mohammed El Haki. Of course, he was on a screen, very well done. And the support that they were given was terrific. Now, there were, there were some, a few people on the fringes who had held up signs. But they were, in my view, rejected by the vast majority of the people there. And in my view, again, this reflective of our community, the Australian community, coming to reject the message that the Zionists are trying to put across. And have no doubt, people like me are not saying to Jewish people, you shouldn't be living in Palestine. We're not suggesting that at all. Uh, We are saying that... They, that they need to be living in a, in a society where all people are, are equal, are treated equally in the law and they have equal rights and, and voting powers and so on. 
That's what happened in South Africa. White South Africans didn't have to leave. Some did, but they didn't have to. And that's what we say should be should happen in Israel. I believe that it will eventually come to that. One little issue that I've thought a bit about is this phrase, hate speech. It sounds awful, hate speech. Uh, oh yes, we must be, we must oppose that. And I've thought about that, and I thought, but hang on, hate is a common feeling, and often with justification. I, for example, hate racism. I hated it when I was a university student in South Africa. Uh, I've hated it over the years when it was apparent in African-American affairs in the United States. I hated it in Israel. And if it causes me to hate the Israeli government, so be it. Uh, In my view, that's right. In the same way as I hate poverty, I hate the gross disparity in income in some societies, particularly in the United States, where billionaires live a lavish lifestyle whilst children die of poverty and in many countries. I hate that. I think most people would hate that. And and if they voice that hatred, people can't say, oh, that's hate speech. You can't have that. No. I would say to people, don't be embarrassed to hate when it's warranted. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> I've um, got a few Good things off you. my chest, Jan. <laughs> okay, we well, going? well, finally, Paul, <laughs> The ANU has told the National Territory Education Union and ANU Students Association it won't take up a controversial definition of anti-Semitism. That's the IHRA. What's the situation in South Australia? I think it is presently before the uh, University of South Australia's Senate it's been moved. If your listeners aren't too familiar with it, it's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, this definition, which starts off with a reasonable definition of anti-Semitism, which I'm opposed to, as I think most people with anti-Semitism. Well, I have many Jewish friends, have no doubt about that at all. But then it goes on to give 11 examples seven of which make reference to Israel and it is clear and it has been, been it's been clear that it has this definition has been used by Zionist organizations to criticize particularly academics who might be lecturers or or whatever who are expressing pro Palestinian sentiments they're able to suggest, well, this is anti-Semitic because it's critical of Israel. And so it, it is a definition which we are totally opposed to. We're very pleased that the ANU has taken the step. The Sydney University, as far as I'm aware, has indicated that it will never accept the IHRA definition. But we, uh, a friends of Palestine in Adelaide, uh, have made submissions to the University of Adelaide Chancellor of the University of Adelaide, Captain Branson, former federal court judge, uh, has um, received submissions from us, and in particular, the finding by the American Bar Association rejecting it. And that carries a lot of weight. We're waiting to hear hear what uh, the University of Adelaide does with it, and we would be very disappointed if they 
were to adopt it. Some parliaments in Australia have adopted it, wrongly in my view, have done so through ignorance. What's on a focus agenda for the next little while? (laughs) Annually we have, it would say, memorial lecture, uh, where we have had um, wonderful speakers in the past, Noam Chomsky, Ganam Pape, Gideon Levy from Haaretz in Jerusalem, people like that. We're in the process of seeking to obtain our speaker for 2023. We're hoping we might get um, Jonathan Friedman, the journalist, and there are some others. So that's really, at the moment, uh, what we're perhaps focusing on. We've been very busy, been very busy, very busy time with the Writers' Week and IHRA. So I think it's fair enough to let people have a bit of a rest because we're all volunteers. And, of course, at 3CR we know all about being a volunteer. That's Paul Haywood-Smith from the Adelaide Group, AFOPA, Australian Friends of Palestine Association. Hey, Anne. Mm-hmm. Where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR, Radio, Radio MMT, between 5.30 and 6.30pm, the second and fourth Friday of each month, Radio, Radio MMT. G'day, this is Ozzy Butler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 8.55am or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Bridget Allen. I'm Malantini. I'm Jake Hamill. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au It would appear that one of the main foci for the opposition to the decision of the Australian government to purchase nuclear-powered subs is the cost, together with the timeline and further integration with the US war plans on China. But today we focus on the safety of these machines, and to do that, I spoke with Richard Bronowski, AO. Richard is a former Australian diplomat, general manager of Radio Australia, and adjunct professor at the Universities of Canberra and Sydney. He's published eight books, the latest being an expansion of his 2003 book, Fact or Fission, The Truth About Australia's Nuclear Ambitions. The latest edition includes extra chapters on Australia's intentions to acquire nuclear-powered submarines, and that was described in 2022. Richard, let's go back to the beginning of these nuclear-powered, in this case, a ship. 1965, I think it was, the Soviet icebreaker Lenin was the first ship to ever have reactors put on board. It had three and it was a big ship, and these reactors were meant to be, be a, a miracle, and there would not be any fuel needed, and the ship would run forever. But unfortunately, two of the reactors melted down, 
and that was a disaster for the ship. And I think after then it, it, uh, it's been retired. That didn't work very well. After that, the Japanese had a, f- a first nuclear cargo ship, and that was the Mutsu. And that was uh, that was quite effective. But then it had a, a radiation leaks, which affected the uh, the crew, uh, radiated some of the crew, and at great expense. It was dry docked and. The nuclear reactor was replaced by a diesel engine, and it was christened and it went to sea again. But there were two surface ships after that in the 70s, 80s, 90s. The American Navy began to put nuclear reactors in aircraft carriers and cruisers, and the whole of the nuclear propulsion business in the maritime regime took off. How difficult was it in those years to actually find out that there had been accidents or incidents? I think it was pretty obvious from the fact that people got sick. The reactors themselves overheated, uh, melted down, which means that the coolant uh, disappeared and the reaction in the uh, fuel rods uh, became so overheated that the fuel rods themselves melted. It's a similar situation to what happened in uh, Fukushima in Japan, where two out of four reactors at Fukushima Daiichi, number one, uh, melted down and there was a catastrophic explosion, not a nuclear explosion, a hydrogen explosion, which blew the tops off the roofs of the containment buildings and the whole of the uh, the, the neighbourhood, the prefecture, and neighbouring prefecture was covered in uh, radioactive actinides and, and uh, material. And it still, it still hasn't been resolved. There's still land there that's uh, radioactive. How many other countries, including the US, followed that path in those early years? I think you could say that certainly the the Soviet Union was the first, followed by the United States, followed by France and Britain. Britain actually developed its nuclear reaction technology from America. It didn't invent it itself, although the British had their own nuclear industry. They didn't have the sophistication to build their own propulsion system time use. So uh, Westinghouse pressurised water reactor system was sold lock, stock and barrel to Rolls-Royce who took over the um, the patent and were able to replicate their own to do. Uh, so France, Britain, the United States, India's last latest country to develop nuclear propulsion. I think it has one submarine or one surface ship with nuclear reactor on board. Japan, of course, has, but they haven't put it to military use. It was only uh, in, a, in a cargo ship, and they haven't, they haven't put any reactors in, in their military vessels, to my knowledge. So there, they're, they're the countries that have them. There are nine nuclear powers, nuclear weapons powers now. Of them, Britain, France, uh, Russia, uh, United States, and China all have uh, nuclear propulsion in their ships as well as nuclear weapons. Add to those those five, they're the five permanent members of the Security Council, of course. Add to those India, which has its first nuclear propulsion ship as well as nuclear weapons. Pakistan doesn't have any yet, I think, uh, is the Maverick. And Israel, Israel doesn't have nuclear maritime propulsion, to my knowledge, nor at this stage does North Korea, although North Korea have a, a very a, a, an advancing nuclear weapons program, including the capacity to miniaturise their weapons and put them on 
submarines and, and they, they have sea-launched ballistic missiles now. So what the North Koreans are doing is saying to the United States, don't you dare attack us because we've got a deterrent. Uh, we've got a second strike capability, which is which is really what they're developing. Quite a logical thing to do, in view of the United the way the United States is. And how them. forthcoming are these countries, or have these countries been with accidents or incidents? They haven't been very forthcoming at all. As I said in my article in Manager, there, there hasn't been any. Uh, the United States have been very coy to to talk about any nuclear accidents on their ships. The British have admitted to one nuclear accident on one of their missile-launching uh, submarines, the, the Vanguard, which was one of their Trident submarines, and that had radiation leaks. But there have been a lot more. I mean, the British have lost, the Americans have lost at least three nuclear-propelled submarines at sea. The Soviet Union and now Russia has lost many more than that. Um, but as far as confessing to nuclear accidents, all of them regard that as top secret. And I'm not quite sure why the British Navy uh, was <laughs> admitted to regard. And why and when did they decide to put nuclear power into the subs? That was a decision made by the Americans. I guess you could say that it, it came about at about the same time that the Americans invented the hydrogen bomb. And the, the people who invented that, the scientists who invented that, were also involved in developing pressurized water reactors for civil use, for providing electricity for the power grid. But also there was a naval technology that was using PWRs as well, and that was very much an American invention. It was top secret. It still is. They don't like to. It's very difficult to find out how the technology works. Although, really, you could boil it down to simply, it's like boiling a kettle of water. What you have is a reactor on the ship or on the submarine, which has a closed circuit, which has water running through it. The water turns into steam, turns around a turbine, which in turn turns either a propeller or, or a system that allows water to be shoved out at the back and drive the boat along. Uh, it's very close to gutter technology. The Russians have it, the French have it, their own. The Americans and the British have Americans. So you've got four powers that have, you've got five actually, because China, which is very secretive as well, with, it, with good reason, also has nuclear propulsion. So the, the five permanent members of the Security Council all have nuclear weapons, nuclear propulsion to drive their ships. And in many of the ships, of course, they have nuclear you weapons. India is the outlier. India is one that also has now its own nuclear, maritime, marine, submarine propulsion with nuclear power. You also talk about collisions and, and sinkings. How prevalent or not have they been? Well... As I say in that article, about 16 uh, ships have been, uh, submarines have sunk, most of them Soviet, three of them American. Uh, they've been catastrophic sinkings in which all crews have been lost in almost every case. And the full nuclear uh, reactor 
has gone to the bottom of the sea where it, it lies now in every case unrecovered. So it's a huge maritime pollution problem. But I'm sure there are more that haven't been discussed. The Americans are very coy about this. I've been on one, I myself have been on one nuclear propelled submarine. It's called Sculpin. It was, uh, I went on it in Japan many years, sorry, in Korea, when I was in Korea many years ago. And I remember being in pro- apartments for the men. There's hardly any room. And I remember sacks of potatoes being <laughs> stored among the torpedo tubes. And that, that shows how primitive part of it was when, in fact, it was very sophisticated in the way it was driven by nuclear power. Do you ever try to recover that radioactive fuel that's on the bottom of the sea? And No. There, there have been some. There have been some attempts. And I wouldn't be at all sure I do not have the information about whether there have been successful recoveries. Kursk sank in the Barents Sea in the Arctic Circle, a big Soviet submarine. I think they tried to recover that, but it sank again. And there there have been other boats that have been towed to to a a place where they could remove the, the reactors in the Soviet Union, then in Russia. But most of them, sunk. So some were actually towed to shore where they'd been decommissioned. But they're still, the, the fact that they've been decommissioned really is not that important because they still haven't been able to permanently dispose of the, of the reactors on board those boats. And that's the problem with these submarines. There's, a, there's about, in Sellafield on the northwest Cumbrian coast of, of England, it's one of the most radioactive places in the world. They have about 90 decommissioned from submarines and ships kept there, not in storage, but not in permanent disposal because we don't have that sort of technology yet. But they're, they're just kept there in the open. Also, in the United States, in Washington State, all the reactors of decommissioned nuclear ships are kept there, and again, they don't have a permanent disposal. They're kept in trenches in the open, in great big, very expensively made casks. But that's only a, a, that's only a temporary solution. There is no yet solution for this high, very high uh, level of nuclear fuel to be permanently disposed from the biosphere, and it's a growing problem. And here we are being told by the Americans we have to dispose of our nuclear reactors from our submarines, which is absolutely laughable. We don't even have yet a disposal site for very low-level pharmaceutical radioactive waste from hospitals and from Lucas Heights, although Lucas Heights also has high-level waste, which is kept at Lucas Heights. Well, let's look at the present time. We're supposed to be getting these subs from UK and US. How long has this... New lot of subs been in operation, or are we getting ones that are a bit old? Well, to answer that, we're supposed to be getting either the astute class or the Virgin- astute class from Britain or the Virginia class from the United States. Virginia boats have been in commission now for at least the last ten to fifteen years, and they're already designing a later edition of the same boat. Whether we're getting the new ones or the old ones, I think we're getting, we're getting I think the plan now is that we've agreed to taking three second-hand Virginia class submarines as a kind of a stopgap. 
an alleged stopgap to protect us from a, a rampant China. The astute boat is also being replaced by another design. The British haven't come up with that yet, and it's all very murky. Whether we get three second-hand Virginias to last us for a while, I mean, if we get them, how, how many of the 30 years in the reactor have already been spent? Are we getting reactors that are, you know, through their half-life and just about finished or what? This isn't clear. What is clear is that there's enormous cost. Our government has been conned into paying for submarines, which really will be very much under the control, under the, under the um, influence of the United States Navy. And they have one purpose, one purpose only really, and that is to contain, so-called contain China, to encircle China, to stop China from breaking out, how dare it, into the Pacific Ocean, which, as we all know, is really an American lake. What about crewing these submarines? Is it different from an ordinary submarine that's not nuclear-powered? Well, the Collins-class submarine takes about, oh, I think just over 100 or even slightly less than 100 men. We have had perennial problems in trying to crew all six Collins-class boats at the same time, to the point where I understand only two or at the most three submarines are operational because we just don't have the crew at any one time. Now, the Virginia class take nearly double that number of crew. The Astute class, not quite double. And if we can't crew the columns, how the hell are we going to crew these, these boats when we get them? There'll have to be some major drive. There'll have to be some financial incentives. There'll have to be, if we're going to go ahead with this, a huge amount of education for crew members so that they know something or everything they can about nuclear propulsion in submarines and how to handle these boats. Otherwise, and this will happen anyway, they'll be under the command or under the, uh, the control of American sailors, both commissioned and non-commissioned officers, and that's why we'll really lose our sovereignty because they'll be very much part of the American program, as I understand it. They're not necessary for the no. defence of Australia. Will they be built here, some of them, or will they all come here already made, so to speak? The ones we'll get, the second-hands one we'll get, of course, are already made and they come from the United States. The plan, vague though it, is, it seems to be, is that the, the submarine hulls for the future newer subs we get will be constructed in South Australia on the Port River where the Collins-class boats were built. But that's still, I think that's very questionable because I think nuclear-propelled submarines have a good deal of technology which is probably beyond Australian shipbuilders at this stage. There'll have to be an infusion of American technology and American personnel to come in and help build those boats, which, it, boats, which again is a derogation from Australian sovereignty because... We won't be in charge of the program. It'll be very much under the supervision of the United States and or Britain. And if they do get built here, they have to have a permanent position to stay when they're not at sea. Where's that likely to be? Well, we, we hear of Port Kembla. But, you know, Port Kembla is a very crowded, congested port surrounded by the greater Wollongong area. I'll be going down to talk at a rally in Wollongong this coming week to protest Port Kembla becoming a new 
a nuclear boat port. It seems to me a very dangerous thing to do. It's, it's one of the problems we have to spend a more billion dollars on to develop some port, and it'll be, I think, with a great deal of protest from Australians. We're a funny mob. On the one hand, we don't seem to be too worried about exporting our uranium under safeguards. On the other hand, we don't want nuclear reactors, any kind of nuclear technology in Australia, except for what we have at Lucas Heights, where since the, the Menzies era, we've had one small uh, research reactor. Port Kimber seems to be the, the favoured port for home-porting these submarines. I think the local people in the greater Wollongong area are getting a bit worried about that. They don't want this, these dangerous boats to be more there. But that seems to be the place that the Albanese government is, is, uh, is fixing itself on. Just go back to that waste at the end of the line. They're saying we won't have yes. to we won't have to worry about it for 30 years. But if we're getting second-hand submarines, does that mean that in 15 years' time we'll have to worry about the waste? We don't know how many years the reactors on the second-hand submarines were going to be given by the United well, sold by the United States. How many years have already gone? Do we have 10 years left? Do we have 20 years left? Do we have five years left? We don't know. But if we have to store the reactors ourselves, which is a complicated job of taking the reactors out of the, the, the submarine and, and, and disposing of them, it's a huge problem. It's an environmental, a very, an environmentally dangerous procedure. And we, no one has invented yet a technology to isolate from the biosphere uh, high-level waste, which has half-lives of tens of thousands of years. We just can't do it. The, the Swedes and the, the the Danes, I think, are, are working on it. The Finns are, but no one really has got a satisfactory solution, let alone Australia, which still has a problem trying to dispose of its low-level waste from hospitals. Politicians who advocate nuclear technology for Australia really have, themselves have a very short half-life not likely to be re-elected because there is a strong nuclear allergy in this country, thank goodness, towards all things nuclear. I notice now that the Murdoch press is spooking the, the resurgence of nuclear interest in Australia, followed by, of course, the, the, nuclear, the nuclear industry itself. I'm not sure it's going to succeed at all. I certainly hope not. Well, I hope we're not paying up front for any of those. Uh, how, what the payment arrangements will be, Jan, but I'm pretty sure we'll have to pay in instalments. And it's spread, as Albanese keeps saying, don't worry, it's spread over 30 years. 30 years, I mean, it's so ridiculous that we're looking at technology that will be available to us in 20 or 30 years' time when there'll be many changes of governments in China, as well as in Australia and in the United States. Who knows what the situation will be like then? We should not treating China as an enemy. It's not about or wishes to invade Australia. It's our greatest trading partner. This is one of the craziest and most dangerous uh, foreign policy orientations that in my 34 years as a diplomat I've seen. It's really bad and I'm so disappointed that it should be a Labor government leading the charge. I don't think you're the only one there, but just when you're talking about the cost of this, we have to add in the cost of Morrison's backtracking on the French one. 
and we don't know how he accounts for why should we have had to pay many billions of dollars to the French when we have when we cancel the contract? There must be some compensation. I can understand that, but when it, it, ha- it hasn't been accounted for, meanwhile we have our national treasure like museums and art galleries in, in Canberra with roofs leaking in the National Library. We're not spending nearly enough money on the things that matter to the people, and yet Defence seems to have an absolutely open checkbook to bill Australian taxpayers as much money as they need to, and it's unaccountable. We just don't know. No, no one I've seen, and I have not seen myself, any account of where this money how it's, how it's accrued and how it's uh, calculated. And yes, we've had to pay the French a great deal of money, but we haven't been told why or how. Just finally, Richard, we're talking about maybe activating the people around Australia to protest against these nuclear-powered yes. ships. What's happening in the other major countries like the UK, US, Japan, where they've got these nuclear subs burst in their countries? Has there been a great outpouring of activities by the people to oppose them? Not to my knowledge, Jan. The the Americans went ahead. Uh, There was no protest about developing hydrogen bombs. There was no protest, public mass protest about uh, nuclear-powered ships. There was a great deal of protest in the States in the 80s about confrontation about the Cold War. And it was, it was one of the leaders of that movement was my sister, Dr. Helen Caldicott, who uh, spent a good deal of time in the 80s when I was at Harvard. I remember this very well. She became quite a, an important figure in the protest movement then. But that wasn't about specifically nuclear propulsion. That was more about uh, weapons and the Cold War and the, and the accrual of so many hundreds of thousands of bombs and, and missiles on each side and how that would wipe out the world. But the Japanese, they, you're mistaken, they, they don't have nuclear propel, propulsion in submarines yet. But I don't believe that the French, certainly the French have been, uh, the, the French governments have been very good at public relations and saying how good nuclear technology is for the people. So there hasn't been much protest there. Nor, nor has there been in the Soviet Union, although it would have been suppressed. India, no, the Indians are very proud of their nuclear technology. Uh, the North Koreans, we simply are not told, but of course there'd be a unanimity in public uh, opinion there about having nuclear weapons. The, the Koreans are now talking about developing nuclear military technology. Uh, they already have about 30 or 35 commissioned nuclear civil nuclear reactors for power. The Japanese still have a nuclear allergy, but they have 54 reactors before Fukushima and the government, the conservative government there is talking about bringing those back online. I think there are about 10 operating again now. But no, there hasn't been a great deal of international public concern about nuclear propulsion as such. Well, we can only hope that conversations like this, Richard, are not necessary, and that these subs might die a death a before they death, get here. Yeah. Yes. I think there's every chance that they will, Jan, and I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye. And in this interview, we've been 
looking at an article by Richard in Pearls and Irritations, which was called How Safe Are Nuclear-Powered Submarines? We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hi, my name is John A. Tate and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. The message is, in the face of the shocking anti-trans and neo-Nazi rally last month in Melbourne, it's time for solidarity, visible solidarity, and to that end, a support rally was held very successfully in Melbourne last week. Amongst those participating was Debbie Brennan, member of Freedom Socials Party and radical women, but also a long-time activist against the far right. Bring in another angle, Debbie, one in more recent years, the rise of TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups, working with conservatives to push their anti-trans agenda. We saw that in the recent visit to Australia and New Zealand of Posey Parker. Where do they come from? Yeah, look, that's a really important question. Like, why is all of this stuff happening? Because we're looking at what's been going on for the last several months at least of fascist attacks on drag story times in the United States as well as um, here, the demonization of gender diversity, I think that it uh, goes hand in hand with um, what happened in the United States with the Supreme Court decision and the rollback of abortion rights there. All of these are connected because it's about the attempt, a far-right attempt globally to force women, queer, non-binary, 
people back home and back into the closet to uh, restore the patriarchal nuclear family. It's really no surprise we're seeing this whole-scale attack on bodily autonomy, which is happening as the global economy is is falling to pieces because the economy needs patriarchal nuclear family as it always has to make its profit. So I think that's what's behind all of this, and this is why the far right and fascists are targeting trans. I can remember working when I was working in a fruit shop back in 2008, 2009, and a group of women were having that discussion between themselves. You know, do I support trans women? Mm. Do I not support? So that issue has been around for quite a while. Yes, yes, it has. And um, I think this goes back to, again, a, a background point that capitalism has always relied on sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. It always has. We're going to see this kind of division um, happening. And when you hear women who are questioning transgenderism and, and opposing or, or questioning why, whether trans women are women, that comes from something that's been around in a section of the feminist movement as long as the feminist movement has existed. And that comes from radical feminism, as it's called. I don't think it's radical, but anyway, um, they use that term. They've taken on that term. Um, what radical feminists believe is that men are the cause of women's oppression, not the capitalist system, but men. And they are biological determinists. So in, in other words, everything comes down to body parts as to what gender you legitimately are. This is why you would have heard those women years ago, and this is why we are seeing what's called TERFs, that's uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, coming out very aggressively against trans people right now. Would you have expected a person like Posey Parker to have come to Australia and New Zealand at this time? It didn't surprise me in the least because uh, she is part of this global attack. It's also no surprise that here she is, far right as you can get, masquerading as a feminist. What the purpose of this, of her tour, was to draw links between the TERFs, the anti-trans feminists, and the far right. It's all part of building far right movement. The fact that her speaking tour was called Let Women Speak is all part of this masquerade. That speaking tour just happened to be backed by CPAC, C-P-A-C, which stands for Conservative Political Action Coalition in the United States, the sorts that back Trump and, and so on. It's a nasty little network of, um, you know, a far-right movement that, that she's a part of. So what her intention of building those links with anti-trans feminists is about is to drive a wedge among feminists 
and by doing to weaken the movement for women's rights. This is coming at a time, again, when the economy is going belly up and there are massive fights led by women, trans women, uh, all women, for reproductive rights, for jobs and pay, the right to be in public spaces without violence, the right against violence, period. It's all part of this. The unfortunate part of this, as we saw two weeks ago in Melbourne, is that there are some anti-trans feminists who have been drawn to that side. How do you respond to people like that who are out at a rally and the two opposing sides are there? What's the way to respond to it? The way is to be there out in our numbers with our messages and with our solidarity. It's the force and the size of that solidarity which is the antidote, the best counteraction against that, which is what we say about any kind of far-right appearance with fascists there among them. We've got to be out there in our massive numbers. Now, two weeks ago, what was really, really worrying was to see Nazis out there who were part of the Parker side, who were sig-heiling freely, and as usual, the police letting them do that while pushing us back. So we had a counter-presence and the police were protecting the far right and the fascists against us who were there to oppose them and were the ones who got the pepper spray, the shoves and everything coming from the police. Nothing new in that. Any of us who have been out before are very familiar with that conduct by the police. It's also, and, and I'll mention what happened on Transgender Day of Visibility in relation to your question. But before I mention that, it was important to see that every place Posey Parker went in Australia and also in New Zealand, she was met with counteractions. In Wellington, they drove her out. That was wonderful to see, to see something like a couple of thousand people coming out in Wellington and telling her that she can't stay was quite a victory. And I, I have seen that currently she's had to cancel her plans to go to Dublin. She's trying to continue her tour over there in Europe, going to Ireland, but Dublin um, scared her away as well. She's being driven back. The thing is that the far right still remains where it is. We still have them here. And the Trans Day of Visibility on Friday night answered what happened in Melbourne two weeks before. It was just wonderful to be there among thousands. I don't know how many thousands, but there were thousands. Very, very defiant. Unions were there. Again, this was very, very important, too. And it was the solidarity 
of that whole event in Melbourne. That's what we need to do. That's how we have to answer them every single time. And what were the police doing that night? They weren't so visible. The weirdest kind of experience I had was when we were at Parliament House and I was walking from a point where I was taking a photo to then join with the Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party contingent at the steps. This policewoman came up to me and she said, isn't that beautiful? She's pointing to the Parliament steps with thousands of people on them. I don't know what she was trying to to accomplish, but maybe this one single cop was thrilled. I don't know, but um, it was quite bizarre. Um, but that was my only, I guess I mentioned that only because that was my only contact with the police. I think the police behaved very differently at Transgender Day of Visibility simply because we were out there in our thousands and showing no nonsense whatsoever in answering the far right. It, that, it comes back to the force of our side and our solidarity, which is so critical. And of course, what's critical also, Debbie, is to protect trans people in their workplace, in their schools, in their yes. universities, because they are being discriminated against and in some places sacked. Absolutely. And and this is where shows of Friday night are very, very, very important because it's show it's shows like that in the streets that then affect the environment in places like in, in workplaces and elsewhere. And something um I'm glad you mentioned that because on the speaker's platform, trans people on the speaker's platform, which included First Nations people, as well as workers in domestic violence and, and so on, and the union movement, the message was just so, so clear that all aspects of life for trans people have to be transformed. They have to be protected and defended and trans people know that they can stand up in the full knowledge that there are people backing them. That is what is going to affect the conditions they face wherever they are, including in the workplace. And it goes back to what you were saying. It goes back to the importance of unions who are so prominent there on Friday night and they have to stay prominent. The other thing about this, by the way, is that this whole thing, this whole division around being trans is something that once did not exist. In ancient matriarchies, transgenderism was embraced. Gender diversity was a uh, a part of society and considered a natural and honored part of society and this was a very strong message that the First Nations speakers made on Friday night as well. We only have to look at our history, we only have to look at the legacies of that of that history to know that this anti-trans hysteria and bigotry is relatively recent and it's the product of private property.
it's when private property came into being that these divisions came into play and these divisions are a part of pushing women into the home and oppressing women. You can't separate any of that. It's all interconnected. That sexism, homophobia, transphobia has been the cornerstones of profit and capitalism. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Well, all I can say is great that the people of New Zealand managed to get their message across very forcefully and kicked her out. Absolutely. And they showed what we can do wherever we are and how to do it. And probably just one other thing that I would mention is that Friday night or what happened in Wellington are very important watershed moments, but they have to be sustained. And how they're going to be sustained is by the building of a united front. And by united front, I mean a united front of everybody who's targeted by the far right. Everybody, and so many of us are targeted by the far right. We can have our differences of opinions and perspectives on various issues, but what brings us together is that we want to defeat the far right. We want to send them packing. In this case, we want to defend the trans community, and in defending the trans community, we're defending all of ourselves, whoever we may be. And that means that we need to come around as a united front based on, you know, principles of unity that we all agree on, that we're, we unite democratically, we act democratically, we're accountable to each other, and that we walk under the banner of unity, in this case around trans safety and trans rights. And that united front is the thing that's actually going to send the far right back into its hole. And how do you get involved? We need to start talking. Any listeners who are interested in this idea, get in touch with Radical Women or the Freedom Socialist Party. Come to our new Solidarity Salon in Reservoir at 113 Spring Street and let's talk because we are connected with all of these movements. That's that's a beginning point, and I think Friday night, that's a good start. Friday night's a good start. We should all come together and start talking. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks a lot, Jan. And Debbie Brennan is a member of Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women. Next on Tuesday Home Time, we have part two of my interview with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. What happened at the International Summit on Genetic Engineering Manipulation in London, which has just closed? Well, that came and went. It was from the 6th to the 9th of March, and uh, there were 400 bioethicists and scientists at the meeting, all pretty gung-ho to go ahead with uh, the genetic engineer of human beings as well. Of course, there was... uh, counter opposition so there was a small but vocal demonstration outside which garnered some publicity 
we've created a declaration internationally which has got around 60 groups and 1,500 individuals signed on to it as well. So the coalition.designerbabies declaration is, is out there going strong. And it was, uh, in the first instance, primarily a response to the fact that the uh, Global Summit on Human Genetic Engineering was being held in London. Our strongest focus really is on the use of human genome editing, where the children that are created in the program have their genomes altered so that the changes will be passed on to their children, grandchildren, and so on to future generations. This is heritable human genome editing. It's a bit of a mouthful, but if you can get your head around the idea that they're going to engineer your genes so that you will pass on the changes that are made to your intelligence, your physicality, or your disabilities even, will be passed on to your children and grandchildren. Of course, this is eugenics. This is altering the human gene pool to create certain, as the proponents say, new opportunities. But it also saddles those people with the values and attitudes and standards of perfection that are popular now and may not fit them very well for the future. Of course, eugenics has a long and horrible history, really, from the 1880s. Mainstream science, with the discovery of various innovations in genetics, was saying, well, now we can uh, begin to get rid of the people that we see in society as undesirable for some reason or other. They might be gay, they might be disabled, or they're just a group that we don't like. This ideology was thought up and practiced originally in England, but in many other countries as well, including Australia. When women were sterilized, people were systematically eliminated in order to improve society and to improve the human gene pool. And those attitudes and ideologies remain. And some people in the mainstream science community still hold those views. And that should be of extreme concern when we now have these human gene editing tools available for these people to achieve their goals. It's a debate that needs to be held. It certainly wasn't started at the recent summit in London. They were talking about going ahead, not in a particularly precautionary manner. Tell me about Transhumanism Australia. Uh, a group that's on the internet that people can look up. Uh, transhumanism is for um, investment and promotion of super things, super health, super longevity, super performance of human beings and they really are promoting the same ideas, for example, as the British Eugenics Society, which still exists. Some mainstream scientists have identified uh, with that organisation and its goals. Just for one instance, um, Watson and Crick, of course, are very famous for their um, discovery or their identification of the structure of DNA. So they were very influential and got Nobel Prizes as a result of the work that led on to genetic engineering as we know it today. Both Watson and Crick were eugenicists as well. Watson, for instance, um, was quoted as saying that attempting to solve the problem of irresponsible people, especially those who are poorly endowed genetically with a large number of unnecessary children, 
if the child is handicapped, wouldn't it be better to let the child die and have another one? And what about the child that's born incurably blind? Is there any reason nowadays for keeping such a child alive? These are the kinds of um, outrageous attitudes that unfortunately some people who have now got their hands on the human gene editing tools still hold. And this is uh, where I think we should be seriously concerned about the future uses of this, um, of this technology. The final statement of the organisers of the summit, of course, was a bit more uh, muted and I suppose from our point of view a little bit more encouraging in that they didn't say how are we going to do it, but they were asking whether or not it should be done a bit more than uh, had been discussed previously. So they concluded by saying, and I quote, heritable human genome editing remains unacceptable at this time. And they went on, heritable human genome editing should not be used unless, at a minimum, it meets reasonable standards for safety and efficacy, is legally sanctioned and has been developed and tested under a system of rigorous oversight that is subject to responsible governance. And I think this is where we really hit a a snag because uh, we've got just such an example in Australia right now with the new... um, mitochondrial law reforms which were uh, finalized in March of last year where um, the research that uh, has now been funded at Monash University to the uh, tune of 15 million dollars does cross the line into heritability so the children who who might be born uh, in the clinical trials at Monash would carry their traits into future generations to their children and grandchildren so that barrier has been crossed But what we see is that um, the leading theorists and bioethicists and scientists and legal people who are purporting to regulate this are showing their true colours, and and that is that they're um, wanting the regulation and the governance of these things to be pretty light. Uh, The NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is not a regulator in any normal sense of the word, uh, is going to apply guidelines. And they have a committee uh, which governs, if you could say that, uh, reproductive technologies. And they will be responsible for, for the governance or for the oversight of the clinical trials in mitochondrial research at Monash as well. But what we see is that at least the chair of that committee, the committee that's supposed to be doing the governance, is out there in forums around Australia talking about this and going along with people who are um, very much in favour of not only human gene manipulation but heritable gene manipulation as well. One of the uh, bioethicists, for instance, is saying that parents have a responsibility to improve the quality of their children and that he's very much in favour of going ahead Um, Julian Savalescu, who's got a chair of bioethics in the UK, uh, who's also an Australian and is sort of the leader of that pack, is very clear that whatever technologies can be used should be used to improve the human gene pool. And we just need to remember the horrific and disreputable history of eugenics throughout the 20th century and those values which uh, say that some people are unsuitable to reproduce and can be dispensed with still 
a mindset that's very much alive, uh, including among mainstream scientists and so-called bioethicists. And I think we should be very, very cautious about it. Absolutely. Well, can I finish, Bob, talking about the illegal clearing for GM cotton in the Northern Territory? And you think, why on earth do they want to grow cotton in the Northern Territory? Well, it's a bit like the Ord in Western Australia in the north uh, was seen as the prime area for growing cotton a decade or two ago. They gave it a go and the cotton was eaten by insects. Now, of course, with the genetically engineered cottons available, they have two characteristics. One is that they produce their own insect toxins, which hopefully they say will manage the insect insects that might feed on the cotton plants. And secondly, they can spray more often and at higher doses with herbicide over the crops without killing the plants because they have resistance to those chemicals conferred on them through gene technology as well. The weather in Northern Territory should be pretty good for cotton, but the land there is uh, very fragile indeed. It's um, also indigenous land, and uh, they certainly haven't given agreement for large areas to be cleared for a cotton crop because it is going to be very destructive. One thing that turned up in the clip just last week, for instance, is that um, Australia's rarest bird of prey, which is now almost extinct, Australia's uh, red goshawk is in that area. And the removal of of the vegetation in those areas so that they can grow cotton uh, will certainly be another nail in the coffin of that particular uh, rare and endangered bird species. The numbers we're talking about are somewhere between 900 and 1,400 mature individuals still remaining. And, of course, they're they're endangered due to the continued loss and degradation of the savannah woodlands in the north through uh, increased agriculture, mining and gas projects. So mining and gas are also contributing, and the Northern Territory government appears very laid back about those um, projects proceeding. And now similarly with uh, the GM cotton. So proposed at the moment is a uh, a trial of um, some hundreds of acres to see whether or not the GM cotton will prosper and whether it will be a uh, an economically viable proposition as well because uh, ginning factories and other infrastructure would have to be built as well. We'll see how it goes. Uh, the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory um, has retained lawyers to take a case against the clearing and we will certainly be supporting them in that as well. Protecting the land, the people and the environment of the Northern Territory from the introduction of a new industry which is very, very destructive, I think, for a few bales of cotton is not in the public interest and we will certainly be actively opposing it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.